Welcome, everyone, to the 10th episode of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast, the podcast on all things forecasting and geopolitics. My name is Clay Graubard, and I'm joined with my co-host, Andrew Eady. This is a special episode of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast because Andrew uh, is not in his home state of New York this week. He is over down in Miami, Florida. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You know, I go home today, so I'm very sad to leave. Nice weather, nice people, but uh, it's been a nice day, a nice little escape from New York City, but I'm ready to go back. That's great. Um, and today, it's just uh, it's just the two of us before you hop on your flight here, I think, in just uh, an hour and a half, two hours. So this is a very special episode. We're going to be covering right. three main topics today. Uh, we're going to be going over our recent forecast about the war in Donbass. We're going to go over a few papers that we've been reading and forecasting recently, uh, most notably the bias information and noise uh, paper that came out recently. And then we're also going to be talking about our upcoming forecast on the election in Peru. But before that, we want to sort of uh, make a little PSA to all of our listeners that next week on this podcast, we will be sitting down uh, with Gaia, the CEO of Metaculus. And so if you guys have any questions for Gaia, for the rapid fire section of our podcast that we do, um, put it in the comments section if you're on YouTube, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can reach out to us on our Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn pages, all under Global Guessing, and put your questions um, on the post sharing this podcast episode, and it just might be asked to Gaia in next week's episode. Uh, so without further ado, let us hop into our first topic, which is the war in Donbass and our forecast there. So, uh, Andrew, why don't you give us uh, a little bit of a, a, a background on that? Sure. So for those of you who have been keeping up with the Global Guessing articles coming out, last week we released our first forecast about um, the conflict in the Donbass. We broke it out into both positive and negative signals for conflict. Um, you know, the positive signals included, but not limited to uh, just the cost of moving all of the artillery and troops. Um, the fact that Biden is still sort of early on in the new administration and the fact that Russia might want to test him um, and America more generally. The idea that if there's so much buildup on both sides, the chances of an accidental spark, something happening that would lead to escalated conflict would be really high. Those are a few of the positive signals and the negative signals included. Um, a lot of the analysis by our friend, friend of the podcast, former Eurasia Group employee, Aaron Schwartzbaum, was basically saying that, I mean, he, he, you have to read the article to find out, but he said, you know, um, the fact that a lot of Russia's military movements were public, um, you know, the fact there was not really any geopolitical impetus for Russia to annex more of Ukraine or to really start conflict there, um, you know, he felt like conflict was not was was not very possible. Um, we ended up having our first prediction was 51% likelihood that um, that there would be conflict. And specifically what do we mean by conflict? Yeah, right. So the metaculous question we were answering, um, the criteria was, you know, would there be 250 or more deaths in any given month before the end of 2021 um, between these two countries? And like I said, Aaron thought chances were low, we had a 51% chance. Recently, however, uh, news was released that Russia was withdrawing their troops from the border. You know, there was word from the foreign minister that they felt like um, their exercise was successful, 
um, that they felt like they were ready to move back. And so we actually dropped that initial forecast from 51% down to 15%. Clay, however, recently brought up to me the fact that for a lot of reasons, including the fact that the same sort of uh, movement withdrawal happened in 2014, but there was still annexation. Um, you know, we, we were reconsidering how significantly we dropped that forecast. You know, 51 to 15 might have been a bit too high, especially given the fact that um, the withdrawal news was supposed to be from May 1st. At the time of recording, it's April 25th. Um, so there's still time for that to, uh, you know, not be the case, like to not pan out. And so, um, you know, we may end up revising that 15% to go a bit higher, just given the fact that there's still a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, I think it's sort of that the recasting, which is what we consider changing a forecast more than 5% in either direction, because that makes a sort of a meaningful jump in sort of buckets of probabilities um, that we may have went too far. As we talked about in our piece, we calculated, I think, a base rate um, that between now and October was about 25% likelihood of these deaths being reached. And we sort of really sort of chopped down our number based on... Um, I think what for me the biggest issue was is it was on the announcement of troop withdrawal um, in, in a similar way that we did our Suez Canal forecast, which it was a lot about the news of they're going to, you know, be airlifting um, cargo containers off of the ship, you know, mm -hmm. if the ship doesn't get undone. Uh, I think we may have made a, a similar um, over... Um, reliance on announcements of things uh, when it came to this forecast, uh, which was sort of one of my concerns. The other one, which, yeah, you brought up, which I had no idea of, is that in 2014, um, before Russia annexed Ukraine, they'd amassed troops, and then they announced that the troops were going to be leaving the border, and they were leaving the border um, when sort of a lot of the conflict broke out, which I didn't know. Uh, I think that came out from uh, the Twitter list that I created um, to get insight on this forecasting question, uh, which if you guys follow us on Twitter at Global Guessing, um, you guys can access this list. I believe it's it's public. Um, um, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, you're seeing it on my screen. Um, but yeah, we, we, we have a list here on Twitter where we've been sort of following people in the open source intelligence community uh, and sort of people that follow Russian action um, and Eastern Europe politics and geopolitics um, quite closely to try to get uh, not not only better signals, but sort of discover those signals for the forecast uh, in advance. Uh, I think the other point that I'm not entirely sure how I feel about, and I'd love to get your perspective, is the fact that they've announced that they're moving the troops away, but a lot of the machinery um, and the sort of the heavy transport stuff uh, the munitions, the the vehicles, all of that, a large portion of that is staying in uh, uh, Western uh, Russia by the border of Ukraine, which means that if they wanted to sort of rebuild up a massive troop presence, all they had to do was send the people back. And a lot of the, the sort of the physical machinery of war is still there. Um, I don't know how we take that in terms of evaluating the whole situation, but I think my initial perspective is that we sort of overestimated the amount of the we overestimated how much tensions have cooled relative to the fact that since the start of this year tensions have been up right for those of you who aren't aware um the war in donbass situation really sort of picked up in 20 it started in 2014 
um, during the annexation of Crimea, there's been fighting um, both in Crimea and in the Donbass region. It simmered down in about 2015 and has sort of stayed at a pretty muted level, um, at least internationally, um, since then. But tensions have been picking up substantially since the start of this year. And then the troop buildup happened. And so now we're at the point where the troop buildup is is announced to be going down, should be done by May 1st, we'll, we'll see. But then we still have a situation where deaths are up on the Ukrainian military side relative to the past. Um, geopolitical tensions in the region don't seem to have been down, and you still have all that machinery. So maybe we're actually supposed to still be at a point above the base rate. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think your analysis is spot on. I think, um, you know, when you leave tanks, when you leave artillery, you leave infrastructure, obviously you can build back up more quickly than you did the first time. You know, uh, they've been building up for a while now. I think even you said it was started in January, um, you know, so I think initially it might have taken a couple months, but now my, I feel like Russia could build back up maybe in a week, two weeks if they need to just get troops out there. Um, and I think that, that just speaks to the fact that, yeah, there's still so many question marks um, about what Russia's intentions are, about um, what's going to happen between Russia and Ukraine in the next month, two months, by the end of the year. Um, and I think 15%, given the fact that they could build back up so quickly, given the fact there's so many question marks, is probably a bit too low. Um, it's probably a bit too low. And for those who aren't aware, I wasn't aware of this, so I think it's interesting for other people to hear. There's a lot of uh, deception that goes on in warfare, especially with Russia. Clay sent me a video recently um, of Russia inflating fake artillery to confuse the West and make them, I guess, I guess to make them think that buildup was happening at a faster pace or that it was accelerated or something. We should say um, uh, allegedly because it was posted by The Sun, which is... Okay, allegedly. Yeah, The Sun is a terrible. Okay, um, that's a great point. But just the idea that, you know, there's so many question marks as to what's actually going on on the ground, um, as well as intentions. I think we'll probably revise the forecast and we're going to be keeping up to date with what's going on in the region. But, um, but yeah, I think we're going to have to raise it from 15, 100%. Um, and I think that what you're saying before about the fact that they left a lot of their artillery there and removed the troops was probably an effort to. Um, sort of de-escalate the conflict a bit and say, listen, we're taking a step to to ameliorate Ukraine, but Ukraine ought to watch out because if they continue to build up, if they continue to be aggressive, we can be back very quickly. Um, and it may not be as, as friendly the next time around. Yeah, I think actually part of understanding where this percentage is supposed to be is answering the question that was posted, uh, was asked to us on Twitter by um, Peter Herford, um, who's an elite forecaster on Metaculus. Um, we had him on the right side of maybe the inaugural episode talking about the Suez Canal forecast, where he um, was way better at processing that information than we were. Uh, and he asked us on Twitter, do we know anything about why they, in this case Russia, massed so many troops on the border and why they pulled back? Was it just to be threatening? And I think I'm, I, I still don't feel like I, I, I confidently under, fully understand the rationale um, of it. I did some reading um, in the Moscow Times, which is uh, in more in, independent news source about what's happening in Russia, uh, as well as reading 
some Russian propaganda. I got some advice from a good friend of mine who um, is at Oxford. Um, he is Russian himself. Uh, he has done some work for uh, the Kremlin with regards to foreign policy in, in the past. So he knows um, this area and he recommended that uh, to sort of understand in some ways what the Russian aims and perspective was, was to actually read Russian propaganda um, on this matter. And it it seems like some of it, taking both from the Moscow Times article and propaganda, was one way to view this would be to get um, attention from the West in an, in an administration that has taken the perspective that it's just best to sort of ignore Russia. It's it it is in part sanctions. It's in part you know rhetoric, but the the sort of the guiding perspective of the Biden administration is in some ways to ignore Russia um, when possible, and that this was in some ways um, Russia forcing attention onto itself and to um, you know raise like a like like a pay attention. Um, to us. And, you know, in some ways, the Russians got that because they were promoting the fact that Biden was the one that reached out to form a summit. Although at the same time, you know, Biden is then sort of taken off the I'll be there for a summit if Putin wants to, which is sort of what Russia wanted to avoid was this whole like, Biden will Biden will do what he's going to do. And so, you know, Russia can either play along or be ignored, um, which could then be a signal that this might happen more so. But um, it could be part of that. It could be part of, you know, reframing what's happening in Donbass right now. It's, you know, Putin got in some ways credit for not invading further into Donbass, um, and not doing more, which is, I think, a sort of a positive shift in terms of framing of the conflict, uh, for his position, uh, which could be advantageous, um, I don't know what what are, what are you thinking in terms of what could have been the the Kremlin's motivations both for bringing the troops there and for taking them from away from the border. You know, I think we're trying to decipher what Russia's intentions are. I think Ukraine's trying to decipher what Russia's intentions are. I think that's sort of the beauty and the downfall of geopolitics is the fact that there's asymmetric information we don't know, and that's what I think contributes to some of the tension in the regions, the fact that we don't know what certain countries want out of this conflict. Um, I think you're right. I think a lot of it's probably posturing. I think a lot of it is what Aaron had shared with us, you know, is that there wasn't any geopolitical impetus for any conflict. I My guess is that Putin did not really want to go into Ukraine, start a more escalated conflict, but now he's going to get a pat on the back for not doing that. So it's sort of a win-win for him, I think. So in a lot of ways, as you're saying, the PR angle is a big one. Um, but I think also, you know, Ukraine has been a bit louder about wanting to join NATO recently. I think, you know, this has been sort of a trend that's been persisting for a long time, the last two decades in the region, more of Eastern Europe joining NATO. And so I think, um, you know, Putin at some point will want to put a foot down right at Russia's doorstep and say, listen, you know, Hungary, Northern Macedonia, all these other countries can join NATO, but Ukraine is not is going to be precluded from that. And so I think, um, you know, maybe, you know, this artillery that he's leaving at the border is not um, is not really an act of an act of aggression so much as it is just like the new normal 
this is what's going to have to be here to make sure that we can maintain the status quo of you know Ukraine being um, staying outside of NATO and being and being a friend to a quote unquote friend to Russia. Um, and you know Zelensky's obviously been very vocal um, against Russia pro NATO. I don't know if he's going to be you know willing to just go along with that sort of narrative. But I think um, I think this may be a new normal for Russia and Ukraine. Um, which is a bit scary because as we said in our initial article, this accidental spark idea, the fact that when you have so much buildup, so many troops, so much artillery, any one wrong step could lead to an outbreak. Um, I think the chances of that just get higher with this new normal. Mm-hmm. And because you're not, it's not just Ukraine and Russia, it's also the pro-Russian sep- separatists as well. There's that third right. sort of wildcard group. Um it was interesting when you're talking about in terms of trying to, you know, decipher all of the signals, because that brings us into the second topic of this week's podcast, which is, segue, I do my best, which is uh, the bias information and noise model of forecasting. Um, this is a recent paper by, and please pardon this pronunciation, um, Satopa, I, I probably messed up the umlauts, uh, Selikov, uh, Tetlock, and Mellers. Um, Apologies if for the name uh, mispronunciations, but this is um, a recent paper that came out this year um, trying to break down the components of forecasting and how they impact accuracy. Um, let me just say before we, we talk about this that in terms of academic papers, I thought this was one of the best ones that I've read recently. Um, I thought it was it took a very engaging way of doing like a literature review. I just thought it was well written and a very uh, compelling article. Um, which is not always the case when it comes to academic literature, especially when you're doing the literature review part of things. That tends to be the worst part. Um, so I, I just like to shout out good academic writing when uh, you see it. But the main idea of this paper is that a forecast, um, l- let's take a step back. So when someone's trying to create a forecast, they are attempting to parse signals. Um, about an event. So let's say that you are trying to predict when the traffic light will turn red. Um, One signal that you could interpret would be um, the pedestrian walkway. If that goes from, you know, the person walking to the hand stopping, you can make a probably a reasonable that 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 is a strong signal that shortly the light is going to turn red for you driving. And that it would therefore be a positive signal. Um, a negative signal for when the light is going to turn red is if it just turned green. You know, recency of that starting would be a, a positive signal. This is probably not the best way to break it down. So there are those signals. And when you're trying to make a forecast, you are trying to grab all of those signals and add them up. If it comes up positive, an event is going to happen. If it is negative, the event doesn't happen. But there are more than just signals in the world. There are fake signals. You that could be, you know, the amount of pedestrians that are at the crosswalk. That could be a a signal that doesn't matter. Maybe um, the amount of cars on the road. You could, you know, in some roads, if there's pressure sensitive, that could impact when a light will change. Not always. So that could be a sort of a useless signal. And forecasters are trying to. Um, interpret these signals. Um, So how does this work? So 
when you interpret a signal, um, you have to determine if it's real or if it's or if it's not real, if it's relevant or not relevant. Um, if you classify that correctly, that's a good thing. If you're if you miss a signal, if you sort of take that pedestrian walkway um, and ignore it, that's noise. Noise is sort of misinterpreting positive signals and sort of fake signals. Um, you can also misprocess a signal. So um, instead of taking something as that makes it more likely, you would say that makes it less likely. And doing that systematically is bias. That's sort of misinterpreting which way a signal should be going. And then there's information, which is just how much you know. Um, if you have perfect information, if you knew everything that was happening, you should have complete omniscience and be able to make a forecast. But most times you have partial information. Um, and so there are these, those are like the three components of a forecast, how biased you are, how, how, how sort of correctly or incorrectly you sort of place the signals on a spectrum, noise, which is sort of how, how many relevant signals are you taking in versus how many irrelevant signals are you taking in, and then information, which is just how much stuff is being put into your forecast. Uh, and as information rises, you're going to end up having most likely more noise because um, you'll just sort of filter these signals incorrectly. Um, and the main finding of this paper is that most reduction in, in terms of forecast inaccuracy or what makes people better at forecasting uh, is about 50% reducing noise in terms of being able to determine whether or not a signal um, is relevant or not. Um, bias is about a quarter of it, and then information is another quarter of it. Uh, and what I found particularly interesting is that um, bias is really easy to correct in terms of aggregation, um, whereas noise is more complicated to get because that's different processing of information. Now, that might be getting a little bit um, too far into it, but um, yeah, do you have anything else to add in terms of the, the model? Did I do a, a good job explaining it? I've only read the paper twice, so. No, you've done a great job, and I think what you said at the outset about, you know, the paper being engaging is spot on. I think it was actually very readable. I think the fact they broke it out into, you know, the first paper was maybe 30, 35 pages, and then they have the supplementary uh, material, which is like a separate, a separate document. Um, I think that's a great way to do things. Um, yeah, I think what was really interesting, and I mean, it's not, it's no spoiler if you read the paper, you'll see the results were really interesting. So what they did is, you know, they, they had these, as Clay said, <clears throat> um, bias information noise. They had a couple ways to test it. In, in the results, um, they showed the difference in Breyer's score sort of between the control groups and the groups that are being tested with these different, um, <clears throat> different variables. And it's exactly what I would have expected, which is you know, kind of cool to see borne out in the actual data. Um, you know, the smallest changes in Breyer's score came from, uh, you know, uh, a control group versus a group that had some training. Um, and I thought that was, that's what I expected because Clay and I both have not had, have not done any formal training like a team in Forest. Um, but, you know, I think we've definitely gotten better at forecasting. So I saw training as maybe having the least impact on, on Breyer's score, just anecdotally. Um, you know, I think teaming was the second one, the Breyer's score. Um, for individuals versus a team um, improved a bit more than with the training. Uh, and I think, again, borne out 
uh, in our own experiences, Clay and I have teamed together, you know, for most of our forecasts. When we try and do forecasts separately, I'm sure we're maybe a bit further off. And then lastly, was the tracking, the tracking of forecast performance, and that had the biggest effect on Briar's score. And I think that much is borne out in, you know, platforms like Metaculous, where that's, I think, one of the biggest um, value adds of the platform is the tracking, is the is is the public facing aspect of of forecasting. So, um, so yeah, I mean. I would really recommend that everybody read the paper. We'll probably link it uh, in the description. Um, it's a publicly accessible, um, but yeah, Clay did a great job of explaining it. And it's really fascinating, honestly, for anybody that is interested in forecasting. What were sort of some of your takeaways based on the takeaways of the paper? Like what, what did sort of, what was like your like next order thought based on this paper? Like for me, um it has to do with being able to fit in more information without increasing noise um there's this idea that basically there's this all the signals in the world technically exist and it's whether or not you're able to capture them into a forecast um but given that like signals are normally uh distributed sort of gathering all of the signals towards the end is going to be difficult and probably really subject to noise. Um, one of my ideas was like how much um, more information increases forecasts relative to like increase in noise. Like if let's say you have, and I know they use different intervals, but let's say information is on a scale of zero to a hundred. If you go from 10 information to 20 information, um, what is the increase in noise that you get there? And really, it's more like going from 80 to 90 information or going from 90 to 95 is probably really when you would see that noise um, threat increase as you're getting sort of more nitty gritty and trying to sort of get all aspects of the situation in. Um, and that's definitely more so on the aggregation side of things trying to figure out how you parse that information from everyone. Um, uh, I thought that was sort of like an, an interesting thing that I was sort of thinking about um, based on this paper. Um, yeah, we've been talking about noise reduction for a while. Something I think that makes sense to fascinate you. Um, I mean, I think sort of similarly, I would love to, you know, because Tetlock and Mellers and all the you know, authors of this paper posit that um, tracking bias Sort of at scale and being able to understand at least directionally and also in terms of magnitude what your biases are and then how to correct against them or at least control for it when you're forecasting it's fascinating to me i'm not aware of my own biases right now um, i would love to sort of go through even just our global guessing forecast from day one go through all of them and try and understand you know do i have some tendencies some trends um, that I could try and correct against as we do for, you know, future forecasts. Um, I think a lot of what we've heard on the right side of maybe the Global Guessing Weekly podcast is that it really helps to be systematic about your forecasting, to be thoughtful. Um, and I think this paper really hammers that home. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that we can do now that would be really interesting to sort of explore related to, as you said, noise reduction, related to our own personal biases when it comes to forecasting. Um, that would make, you know, make a very interesting, uh, maybe Metaculous Mondays, I don't know, but an interesting article for sure. Um, yeah, there's actually that whole point about um, 
the super forecasters and like what makes them good you just brought that up i thought in this mm-hmm. paper it was really interesting when they said forecasting accuracy it doesn't have to do with the forecast it has to do with the uh, forecasters bias um ability of distinguishing signal and noise and ability to sort of gain information right um good forecasters are ones that have low bias can reduce noise and get more information it's not anything that has to do with a particular forecast but it has to do with sort of these three components and how they manage them and that's actually what's predictive of of super forecasting good forecasting accuracy um which i think makes it sort of much more trackable in terms of how to get better at forecasting have i done better at bias which means am i getting better at placing signals across the spectrum which could be very useful if you're reading other people's forecasts and how they're placing signals if you notice that well you know shoot out of these 100 people i consistently am sort of (laughs) putting these you know certain ones in the wrong direction well i have a bias problem i should work on that um or oh you know actually i am good at placing things i just happen to sort of also add in a lot of things that just don't matter. So I'm a noisy forecaster. I should be a little bit more selective. And maybe for me, because I am good at placing signals, once I determine if they're, um, but yeah, I'm good at placing signals. I'm bad at picking them out. Maybe triaging the amount of things you're including in your forecast will improve accuracy. Or maybe you're great at noise and bias. You just don't have enough information. Well, that's probably the one of the easier ones to fix, but um, you know, you at least know where you're supposed to be looking. Um, I'm hoping we can employ some of these, and we'll probably get to this later. But I think, you know, we have an upcoming forecast that we're going to be working on, thinking about. It's an election. I feel like an election is, you know, one of the most uh, best testing grounds for a lot of these, a lot of these new new techniques and ways of thinking. Um, you know, there's. You know, some forecasts like what's going on in the Donbass and um, like the Suez Canal, where I just feel like there's, I feel like there's less potential for noise in those situations. Honestly, I think when you have an election where there's so many vying interests and so many candidates and so many different news sources, I think it's going to be very interesting to try and test out some of these ideas. Um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, maybe less so the bias, but definitely noise reduction, trying to understand what's actually too. diagnostic. Um... Yeah, I mean, noise, I think, during election, that's huge. There are signals um, happening hourly. Um, But I do think, actually, bias will be... um, Actually, wait, before we get to that real quick, I just want your opinion on um, this paper and many papers all use the same data set, which is using the IARPA geopolitical forecasting data from, I believe, 2011 to 2015. Um, yep. And a lot of papers use the same data set. And it makes sense. This was, you know, tens of millions of dollars poured into doing these forecasting tournaments. And so it's obviously high quality data. Um, and I know that they sort of do sampling of data for, you know, other situations that they didn't consider in their sensitivity analysis. Um, but is there something, to what degree is it troubling that a lot of papers on forecasting all use the same data set? Um, when reaching its conclusions. Uh. Yeah, no, I think it is just a bit concerning. You know, we, we both are, you more so than me, but academics, we've written, you know, research papers. I think um, when you have so many papers, so much like integral research of the forecasting space, 
based on like one basically fulcrum tournament. I think, um, you know, if somebody were to make a legitimate claim about, for instance, like, uh, I don't know, incentive issues with a tournament, like we talked about this before, like, you know, do certain incentives, do things with bias and noise change within the forecast environment? If somebody made a legitimate claim about that and all these papers are based on the same set of data, you've got a real problem. So I think just from like a risk perspective, it's probably um, a bit concerning to have this one tournament be sort of the fulcrum for so much research. That being said, and as you mentioned, tournaments are a great form of data for forecasters. Um, it's very rare that you get that many people doing that many forecasts within a controlled environment. So like in terms of research, it makes a lot of sense why that'd be the case, especially because forecasting is still so new. Um, there's not a ton of examples similar to this tournament that you can use to do good research. Um, but yeah, no, it is definitely very concerning just how much research is based on that one tournament. Um, and, you know, my guess is that as forecasting becomes more socialized as, um, as you know, there's more tournaments, the research will diversify a bit in terms of their sources. But yeah, no, it is a bit concerning. And also we talked about this before, I'm not sure it really matters, but a lot changed in the world after 2015 as well. So I think, um, you know, the fact that most of this data is pre-Donald Trump, pre, um, you know, maybe a more uh, exacerbated demonstration of, you know, America's hegemonic decline. I think, um, I don't know, I think there could be issues there as well, but, um, but yeah, right now we're sort of lacking for other, <laughs> for other data. So we have to deal with what we have. Um, and then as before we just got on this topic, we were teasing one of our upcoming forecasts. Um, when we started Global Guessing, we had a whole election mini-series to get our feet wet in the forecasting space. And we are preparing to do another election forecast, this time uh, in Peru. Um, and we were talking about how noise filtration will be very important. But I also think bias will be important, um, just given the nature of the election and who is running um, in it. Andrew, I know you've done a little bit more research into this than me, so why don't you um, give us a sort of a brief setup of, well, what the upcoming presidential election in Peru is all about. I mean, so one of the reasons why we were excited about this election to begin with is, I mean, most of the elections that we've looked at, this is actually pretty eye-opening for us just at a macro level. Um, a lot of elections were, uh, you know, very much pre-decided. You know, it was like, it was pretty clear who was going to be the winner. It was pretty clear like, what the situation was. Um, this election, I think, you know, I read an article back in March that said uh, nobody was polling over, you know, there's very few people polling over double digits. It was that contested. There were 18 candidates. Um, and there's a lot of market factors riding on this election as well. Peru is the second uh, top producer of copper in the world. Copper is using a lot of electrical equipment. It's a big market. People invest in it. Um, so, the implications for the copper market are going to be massive. Um, there's also, you know, Peru's currency, the soul. Um, when, so right now, there's two front runners. Um, it's sort of reminiscent as Clay mentioned. We talked about this offline yesterday of 2016 and the fact that like it's, um, you know, a pretty left wing and a pretty right wing candidate going at it um, at the top. I think the most recent poll that I saw um, from Datum International had the left wing candidate. Um, at 41% and the other candidate at 26%. Um, and, you know, there was some concern 
about the left wing candidate nationalizing a lot of their commodity markets and commodity resources um, just based on his platform. He's come out now and said that won't happen, um, which is, I think, has stabilized the markets a bit, stabilized Peru's national currency. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting plays from a financial perspective that we might be able to make um, and a lot of really big implications geopolitically as well that I'm excited to look forward to. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one. Um, as I just showed the the polling, uh, recent polling. Yeah, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, the left wing candidate uh, had definitely has a comfortable uh, polling lead right now. Um, but if you add up the amount of blank, none, and undecided, um, in these polls, you're looking at, let's see, that's like thirty seven percent. Uh, undecided or none, 27% undecided, none, 32% undecided, none um, in, in these polls. And so while the left-wing candidate has a large lead right now, you have that huge undecided, non... It was 30% um, earlier, like a month ago, I think. There were like 30% yeah. of people who either um, were going to put in, like said that they're going to put in like a blank ballot or didn't know who they're going to vote for. 100%, I agree. And the question is, does that hold up, right? The first round of voting had 70% uh, voter turnout in Peru. Um, you know, if people show up in the polls, are they going to stay undecided or will they pick one of two? And then which way will that break? Um, clearly, looking at the poll right now, um, Pedro Castillo, the free Peru candidate who is the left wing, um, is beating out Kiko Fujimori. Did I get that right? Probably not. Sounds um, good. Sounds good. Close enough. Um, she is the um, popular force candidate, which is the um, far right party in Peru. She's the daughter of the former president um, of Peru from uh, 1990 until I think like 98 or 2000. Um, but she's polling more poorly. The question is, is there um, a 2016 U.S. effect where... Um, undecideds aren't really undecided and they'll break heavily for the far right candidate or will we see um, a more even break when it comes to those people which would then put Pedro far and ahead the favorite um, the polling graph here would therefore indicate that he gets over 60 percent of the vote I think sort of that's you know if, if we had a forecast right now I would say Pedro is clearly the favorite but I would say there's definitely it, it's an outside chance but I don't think you can count out necessarily the far right candidate and it'll be really sort of interesting to break down all of the factors happening in Peru because if you look um on the Wikipedia article which is you know take that for what you will breaking down the selection a lot of the sort of the social political economic factors that are motivating this election aren't identical but they are similar to a lot of the motivating factors in the 2016 US election um now people in Peru are different than those in the U.S. And so they might respond to those factors instead of looking right, looking left. Uh, that's certainly a, a very distinct possibility. And so that's why, you know, a lot of this commentary is staying intentionally vague is because we haven't fully dug into it. But um, given the fact that there's sort of, there's three polls total that we're looking at, which is um, a very small amount that it'll be very interesting to sort of dig into this question um, and sort of, under and get a better understanding of how how likely 
is the chance that the polling is off in a similar way that it was uh, in 2016 in the United States. Um, and just quickly before we close, um, I think it'd also be interesting to the first South American election that we'll be forecasting. So to look at, you know, potentially later down the line, if there are any trends continentally um, in the way that elections run or the way that, you know, certain populaces look at their different candidates, um, the number of candidates, whatever it may be, I'll be interested to just sort of compare our past elections, Burkina Faso, Ghana, um, Portugal, and now this one, and see what, to see if there's any similarities, anything interesting. So be cool to watch. So uh, make sure to uh, subscribe to uh, our YouTube and to uh, our website, globalguessing.com, so you can get yep. uh, an email notification when that forecast is, is live and ready for you guys to view. Um, and if you have any commentary or perspective on this, uh, in any way, uh, make sure to reach out to us either in the comment section on social media. Okay. You can get out on our website. We have a contact if you want to send us an email. We'd love to hear from you and gain your perspective. And maybe you'll find a positive signal or maybe you've just found noise. We'll have to do that filtering ourselves. And on that note, that is the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast, Episode 10. My name's Clay. I'm Andrew. Thank you. And that... <laughs> And that's a wrap. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.